Welcome to the Alts Podcast. This is not another podcast about the stock market. Instead, we focus on the rapidly evolving world of alts. The goal of this podcast is to provide original research and insights that empowers you to become a better alternative investor. With each episode, we hope to bring you along with us as we learn together. Thanks for joining. Now let's dive in. Opinions expressed on this podcast by the hosts and podcast guests are for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Podcast hosts and guests may maintain positions in the offerings discussed in this podcast. Hi, I'm Harisha Ruiz, host of the Alts Podcast. Today's guest will leave quite an impact on you. Yes, pun intended, we're talking meteorites with the founder of Skyfall Meteorites, Mendy Uzilu. We'll get into all sorts of topics like meteorites as an asset class, Mendy's journey as a meteorite dealer, and his appreciation for the science at the backbone of the hobby. Hope you enjoyed today's crash course on meteorites with Mendy. Mendy, it's so great to have you on the podcast. I can't tell you how excited I am for, for today. Just because I'm learning about something really new for me, obviously always been curious about meteorites, but uh, so great to talk to uh, an expert. Thank you very much. I appreciate uh, you reaching out to me so we could have this interesting conversation. You know, you're referred to me by, by another meteorite dealer. The great thing is that all you guys have like these great websites with all these like pictures of you guys going to, you know, different places. Just a very, very kind of broad question. Uh, you know, how cool are meteorites? They're out of this world cool, of course. <laughs> is that the right answer? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, like what I mean by that is, what is it about meteorite collecting? Because I know you weren't doing that, you know, for forever. You know, what is it that that drew you in? So that's a wonderful question, and I, and and I do appreciate it because, so a lot of people that I meet that are collectors has kind of led me to believe that in this world, there's two types of people, those who like to collect things and those that don't even get it. And that's perfectly fine, right? We need both kinds of people in this world. But for me, I've been a collector of all sorts of things since I was a kid. So, you know, from when I was a a young boy hunting around for, for fossils around where I lived, collecting stamps and comic books and, you know, obviously rocks and all that. But what really just hooked me hard on, on meteorites really was that sense of, of wonder and awe and quite bluntly smallness that you feel when you hold a rock that's billions of years old. It, it, it kind of puts you in place within the universe or at least the solar system I mean, gosh, you're just holding a piece of stuff from the very beginning of the solar system. So how can that not be cool? When you say that, you know, you you used to collect other things. And, you know, it's funny that, you know, in, in talking to collectors, they have that DNA, right? They they collect different things and they're passionate about it. And, and you know, they they enjoy doing those things, but then they find that one thing that like really draws them in and, and uh, it's just, it's just great to hear those stories and about how they got into it. And, and, you know, I, I referenced this earlier, you haven't been doing this for your whole life, right? You had a separate career. Yeah, it kind of came, came late in life. I started collecting just about 10 years ago, and I'm 55 now. And for me, what was just something I really appreciated is 
I've always really loved like art and history and anthropology and just learning about all kinds of different things. And what's really wonderful about meteorites is that you really get to blend all those things into one. I mean, even to the point of, you know, it kind of brings in theological questions. You know, are we alone in the universe? Is there even uh, some kind of primordial life on, on other planets? What is our place in the universe? So you don't get that with, with really any other collectible. And uh, that sense of awe, and uh, you can also look at meteorites and you can go however deep you want and however high level you want. And one of the things I really enjoy learning about is certainly the scientific aspects and kind of digging into all that to the best of my ability, which of course, you know, I, I didn't get my PhD as a meteoriticist, not to be confused with meteorologist. Anyways, I ramble, but I, I think I, I answered your question. Kind of off topic here, but I've been researching a little bit and there's this idea that even meteorites could be responsible for seeding life on earth, right? That's right. The meteorites brought in, I guess, some bacteria, I don't know how to how to put it, but some uh, cells, you know, and, and that they are kind of responsible for, for bringing life to earth. I mean, that's pretty far out, right? I mean, that's, that's something that, that you don't think about on a day-to-day basis. No, you're, you're absolutely right, certainly about the philosophical aspect. But let, let's take a step back here. So what has been proven is that uh, there was a, a stage, obviously, during the Earth's uh, accretion and, and then differentiation. And then as the Earth was being bombarded by all of these different kinds of meteorites, there were certain kinds of meteorites that brought in with them what I'll call prebiotics. So basically, it's the building blocks of life, but not life itself. And I think we need to be very careful when we uh, talk about that. And I'm not even speaking here about religious reasons or anything like that. I'm just saying purely from a scientific standpoint, we know that um, a lot of these proteins and prebiotic sort of things came here uh, within meteorites, although there's a little bit of disagreement there, and I'm not going to get too much into the, the science piece of it, but then these proteins assembled over time, and then we had, you know, evolved into early single-cell life forms, and, you know, then the rest of the story is written however you see fit. But here's one of the beautiful things about meteorites. I kind of view them as a time machine, because they allow you to look way back into the very beginnings of the solar system. They're uh, a portal that allows you to walk through solid matter, because through meteorites, we've learned about the composition of the Earth from the core all the way up to the crust, because they give us insights of, you know, into regions of the Earth that we would have literally no access to. Meteorites allow us to understand better how life forms in extreme environments. So, you know, to me, meteorites are a little bit of the superhero of the collecting world. Yeah. And, you know, with you saying that, I'm sure, man, I'm sure that there's going to be somebody listening that's going to gonna get hooked, you know, because just the things you've just described, right, the, 
the significance and kind of like the theories that abound, right, with early life and early the early solar system and the universe. Really fascinating. Uh, I'll just give you a really quick example about the the time machine effect. You know, on the one hand, yeah, it allows you to look back uh, in time, like I said, but there's another really cool thing in that as human beings, we have a really hard time understanding very large numbers. But for example, there are iron meteorites that are the remnants of a protoplanet whose core was exposed, and that metallic core cooled at a rate from anywhere from one degree centigrade to 10 degrees centigrade, and sometimes a little bit more, uh, per million years. And because of that incredibly slow cooling rate, many of these iron meteorites will develop crystalline patterns. So can you imagine that a piece of molten iron can actually form into crystals? And uh, as meteorite collectors, some of us are big fans of these iron meteorites. And long story short, they're like little miniature works of art that were millions and millions and millions of years old in the making. And that's really hard to comprehend. I mean, you think about uh, holding a hot object in your hand and to think that something could cool that slowly and allow the growth of crystals, that's just mind-blowing. Yeah. Are you referring to, and you know, you correct me, Matt, uh, to like palisites? Is that the kind of the classification for that? So palisites are meteorites that belong to one of the three most basic categories, which are stony meteorites. You have iron meteorites, and then you have stony iron meteorites. And palisites are stony iron meteorites. So the iron portion of a palisite can, uh, and usually does, show these Widmanstatin patterns, these crystalline patterns. But what I was referring to earlier is also and more commonly seen in iron meteorites. And the, the reason I bring it up is because, you know, I've been what, looking at pictures of them and you're, you're absolutely right. What you just said was right on, man. They're beautiful. I mean, they're, they're really, and, and I can only imagine what it is like to hold it and kind of see it up close. But just the pictures, you know, and then you see the, the you know, the photographer putting up against, putting it up against the sunlight. I mean, it's, it's just like really cool. You know, you wouldn't think that the meteorite has that those characteristics, right, that that they can look so, so brilliant. Well, and, you know, since the um, the impetus for this call is to discuss meteorites as asset classes, let me say this, that it's interesting that you brought up palisites because those are the ones that really capture the imagination of uh, uh, new collectors and highly experienced collectors. And interestingly enough, it's also one of the meteorite classes that has seen a pretty significant uh, increase in value over, I'd say, the last five years. Just so that we talk about that, like, and I know that a lot of the pricing is based off of grams or kilograms. Could you give me an idea of what that is? Like, has over the last five years, would you say prices have doubled uh, per gram, let's say? Yeah. So, you know, again, it's whenever we talk about meteorites and their value, it's critical to understand that, like any other collectible, not every palisite is created equal, just like 
not every painting was uh, created equal, right? A five-year-old doing a finger paint is not going to sell as much as a Picasso, even if they were to use the exact same materials. When we switch that kind of thinking over to meteorites, quality, uh, rarity, the, the overall condition, all these things come into play. And certainly with palisites, you have uh, what people consider the gemminess of the olivine crystals. There's, uh, you know, whether the meteorite itself is stable over the long term or if it requires a lot of uh, maintenance and care to prevent rust. So there's a lot of considerations that go into that. Now, to come back to answering your question, though, here's the way I would respond. So there's a, a couple of highly sought after palisites, one of them being Esquel and another one called Imalac, for example, which are considered some of the more, if not most, beautiful palisites out there that are certainly available to the general collector, okay? Those have easily doubled in the last five years. And in some cases, I would even go as far as saying tripled. When you say, uh, I'm going to try to pronounce here again correctly, Esquil and Imalac. Correct. What does that refer to? Is that like a certain, uh, the, the, the landfall where the region it was collected in? So the way meteorites are named really depends on uh, the rules that are put out by the meteoritical society. And the rules state that you need to name a meteorite based on sometimes it's the closest post office. Sometimes it's the closest land feature uh, or the name of the region. But overall, the names are certainly tied to as specific a location as possible. So, for example, Imalac comes from Chile and Esquel comes from Argentina. And, and, you know, you mentioned that about that those are two particular collections that are highly sought after. You can't really forge a meteorite, right? Like, I mean, let's say you're looking for certain collections. If you're a reputable dealer, right, you're not going to sell somebody just a regular old rock, right? So the short answer is, of course not. The more detailed answer, and I think it's important, is this really comes down to just like literally, it doesn't even have to be collectibles, but, you know, if it's one of those that's too good to be true, it probably isn't. So uh, knowing who the reputable dealers are is really important, but just as equally important, you know, sometimes a collector will go out and perhaps sell a meteorite because they've already upgraded to a nicer specimen. And you want to make sure that that, that collector, you know, is, is ethical and honest um, and all those things. And by the way, there's, there's a lot of great collectors and great dealers that are not, not part of any kind of association, but there are associations out there that uh, provide guidelines and an infrastructure that kind of govern the accepted norms of how you should sell and present uh, meteorites. Yeah. I happen to be the president uh, and founder of one of those called the Global Meteorite Association. 
And, you know, we've, we've got a code of ethics and are, in fact, even in the process now of putting together all the guidelines on how to properly describe a meteorite, uh, how do you ensure its authenticity, and what are some common used uh, words and language and how to use those. Because, for example, the word uh, museum grade uh, occasionally gets thrown around but there's no real meaning behind that. So we're, we're trying as an organization to really provide a, uh, a, a framework of uh, authenticity, education, community. And like I said, I, I really want to re-emphasize there are a lot of fantastic dealers that are not members of any association, and they are great people. For someone that's brand new and you might not know where to go, going to an association like the Global Meteorite Association and identifying the dealer there certainly gives you an extra level of confidence. Absolutely. Mendy, so let, let's take it back. You worked in Silicon Valley. I did. And that's kind of where you caught the bug, right? You you started watching uh, Meteorite Men uh, with uh, Jeff Notkin and, and Steve Arnold, right? And, and I started watching the episodes too, and, and I could see how you know, you could be drawn to that. And that kind of, that sparked your, your curiosity. And then uh, one day you just decided, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm packing up from Silicon Valley and you're going to become a, a, a meteorite dealer, a full-time meteorite dealer. And you moved to Austin. Correct. Talk about that. Like how do you decide to do that? So I grew up in Austin. I was originally born in France and from France, uh, in 1976, uh, my family moved to Austin and as a nine-year-old, I had no chance but to follow <laughs> along with my sister. Um, and I stayed in Austin for a really long time, you know, going to school, going to university at the University of Texas at Austin, uh, had jobs at various places in Austin. Uh, and then my wife and I decided uh, it was time to go and check out some other opportunities. And so we went to the West Coast for a while. But Texas always hearkened back. And so when the time came, we decided it's time to move back, be closer to family. And I had already been uh, really involved in the meteorite community for a while. I was already doing sales and things like that, even as I was working full time. And I realized that I could, in fact, have two full time jobs after stepping away from uh, the corporate world. And so I became a full-time meteorite dealer as well as a full-time high-tech business consultant, which actually was, there's great synergy between the two because that allowed me to travel the world. And I got to meet a lot of very cool collectors, even when I was on business trips, for example. So that has just been a wonderful combination for me. And, um, you know, it's been yeah, almost six years uh, since doing that, and it's just been awesome. So once you decided to make that jump into becoming a full-time meteorite dealer, you started Skyfall Meteorites, right? No, actually, Skyfall Meteorites was around a little bit before that. And I've also, and, and by the way, I should also state that I've been doing a, a lot of volunteer work with um, other, and did do a lot of other uh, volunteer work for other meteorite organizations because I want to spread the love of meteorites as a hobby. And so I just felt like between 
these two full-time endeavors that I had, I could still squeeze in a, a good bit of volunteering to help with outreach and education and anything else that people needed in the community. So with that outreach, do you go all like on meteorite hunting trips uh, with you know different members of the community? What are your experience? How do you get people involved in, in, let's call it a hobby, right? When you're starting or the in collecting, I would imagine because there's a big discussion now with growing you know, different hobbies and it always starts with, uh, you know, starting with kids and getting them interested. So interestingly enough, and this is one of the things that I feel we must change as a meteorite community. Right now, it's really dominated by an older group of people. However, you're absolutely right that outreach needs to begin at young ages. And so pre-COVID, I started doing that uh, at my son's high school, where I I gave uh, presentations on meteorites. And at the end of those uh, presentations, I got the uh, students were allowed to hold a uh, Martian meteorite in one hand and a lunar meteorite in the other. And it was fun to see their expressions and kind of see their eyes open up and and go just, wow, right? I mean, no museum is going to allow you to handle those types of meteorites. So I really enjoyed doing that. And that is something that I, I personally would like to do some more. And through my organization, uh, we are absolutely committed to doing that a whole lot more because we do need to bring in and, and grow the community. If you look at the size of the meteorite collector community, I mean, I I wouldn't even venture a guess, but it probably one one hundredth the size of the fossil collecting community and probably even less for the mineral collecting community. So there is a lot of room to grow for us. And, you know, kind of tying it back to that whole asset class an investment aspect, meteorites are incredibly rare. Even the cheapest, most common meteorite out there is still an incredibly rare thing. Now, not that those really common and cheap ones are going to be something that you're going to invest in, but the point I'm trying to make is it's a very, very limited uh, resource. You know, once a fall is done, or once a find that all the different pieces have been found, you know, they're not making any more of that. So that limited quantity, uh, and especially if the quality or the rarity of the type or all these other things come into play, by growing the size of the community, there's going to be a demand for a supply which is incredibly limited. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about, you know, we're talking about before about Skyfall meteorites. You know, when you're dealing with meteorites, how do you source them? And um, I guess I'm kind of interested in, 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 you know, the origin of it. So I read somewhere that about 75% of all meteorites in the world come from Northwest Africa, right? Mm-hmm. What is that, uh, I guess, that, that, that pipeline, right? That where it goes from the locals living in that area and then with dealers coming into the area and then sourcing them. Could you give me an idea of how that works? I don't know if it's changed over the years. In a lot of ways, it hasn't changed. And in some ways, it's changed a lot, especially with 
Uh, now the uh, availability of the internet to anyone with a handset, with a cell phone. But let me let me take uh, just a little step back there uh, because I think this is really an important part of talking about the quote-unquote value of a meteorite. So there's plenty of meteorites, like I said, that are common and you can easily, easily get. But there's a whole lot of meteorites that, like I said before, you know, they have fairly limited quantities, like a couple of pounds of a meteorite is kind of typical. I mean, it can be a lot bigger than that. There's some meteorites that are, you know, a ton or over. And there's some that, you know, it's like 10 grams. But what's really, really important to understand is that meteorites have incredible scientific value. And there is a a wonderful symbiotic relationship between the meteorite hunters and those people in the scientific community uh, who get to study those. So we didn't talk very much about the scientific institutions, but they do play a critical role in this entire ecosystem because they're the ones that have the ability to do the analysis and to say, not only is this a meteorite, but it is this kind of a meteorite. Uh, and what they get out of it is, of course, because of that, they get to see an incredible number of, of new meteorites. Because it's not like, I don't want to say this never happens, but it's unusual for scientists to go out and hunt for meteorites on their own, even like if it's a, a new fall. The only place that happens, really, uh, to the exclusion of private citizens, is in Antarctica. And there are international groups that go out there and collect meteorites from Antarctica. But you're absolutely right about the Northwest Africa, or let's just call it North Africa region. And what's interesting now is the Chinese Gobi Desert is also seeing meteorites coming out of it. And the reason is, is that with shifting sands, new material is not only exposed all the time, but the shifting sands, just based on the fact that it's a desert, the heat uh, helps protect meteorites from decomposing into the soil or the sand. So the way things started out is in about the early 1990s, uh, a few uh, meteorite collectors slash dealers uh, went to North Africa, specifically Morocco, and started educating some of the Bedouins and nomads that traverse the Great Sahara Desert into what a meteorite looks like. What's wonderful about these nomadic tribes is that they don't really recognize any borders. It's If it's the Sahara they just cross it and, you know, and have been doing so for, uh, I would expect, millennia. So they come across areas of the desert that are just not normally traveled by people that are not doing what they're doing. So um, by training them to identify meteorites, it has created an amazing opportunity for science and for collectors and, and certainly for dealers. And so some wonderful uh, examples of meteorites that have literally changed the way we think about the science of meteorites or meteoritics 
have come out of the, the, the hot desert of the Sahara. The big way things, and, and by the way, so that part of it really hasn't changed much. What's changed in the last, oh, I would say probably five years, and by change, I mean a dramatic change, is that now with the internet being available, the folks that are in North Africa can now communicate directly through Facebook or WhatsApp or whatever and connect with collectors and dealers uh, directly. So that's made a big change in terms of uh, the quote unquote middleman and kind of shortened the the transaction chain. Is that something that you as a dealer do? Because, you know, you have you build up those relationships or do you find that you're still, you know, working with the middleman? It's a little bit of both. In reality, the, the middlemen now have effectively shifted their location from Western countries to Morocco. In other words, it's Moroccan citizens that are now performing the job of really being the middleman. And a lot of them were always there, but it's certainly uh, strengthened over time. So what happens is, is that nomads will seek them out sell them their goods, but then it goes immediately into the hands of dealers and collectors and anybody else who who desires it. And certainly as well, the scientific community, just depending on various routes it takes. You mentioned, you know, obviously Northern Africa is a hotbed. You mentioned China, the Gobi Desert, and the way the sands kind of preserve the meteorites. And there've been landfalls like in South America. I was just curious, because you see this in the news where civilizations take things from other countries and the countries want it back, right? Because it's part of their heritage, it's part of their culture, their history. Are there any laws, you know, or is there any sort of advocacy to treat meteorites in that way where, you know, they're kind of part of the relic of a national identity? The answer is yes and no. You know, the laws change country by country and sometimes uh, even state by state. So one needs to be cognizant of those laws and be respectful of those laws. There are organizations that are uh, trying to make sure that proper science is conducted on the meteorites and that those scientists from those countries certainly get to participate. But let me say this, is that international laws are incredibly complex. And it's something that I really try hard to understand, but I am not an expert. And as far as that goes, I would just have to say people need to do their own kind of research and ask your dealer, are there any issues? Where did this actually come from? Is it okay to own it? Uh, Because like I said, you know, laws change person, uh, uh, country to country, state by state. So for someone new coming into this hobby, and certainly someone that's looking to spend the amount of money to invest into meteorites as an asset class needs to be really well aware of that and work with someone who they really trust. Not to put you on the the spot, but are there any meteorites or from any location that you can think of right off the top of your head where it's kind of like uh, those, you know, you kind of want to stay away from because 
because the laws aren't are really kind of there being enforced a little more heavily than from other regions. Oh yeah, there's an easy one, and that's Antarctica. Antarctica, you can almost think of it, and by the, I just, I'm just coming up with this analogy, so hopefully it's okay. <laughs> but you can think of Antarctica almost like the moon. You can own meteorites from the moon, but you can't own moon rocks. Okay, and there is a there is a a, a distinction there. Just like if you meteorites that are found in Antarctica, uh, because the expeditions are conducted by governments and therefore paid for by that country's taxpayers, as collectors, we can't own any meteorites that come from Antarctica that predate the treaty of, I believe, 1976. It could be a little bit later. I'm not 100% sure on that. And by the way, that makes those pre-treaty meteorites uh, highly sought after because there's just very, very few of them. But, you know, that's just one example and one that most people are aware of. This is just so cool. And, you know, <laughs> so if if there were meteorites discovered or unearthed prior to the treaty, they're OK and they could be they could float around the market anytime. Is that correct? But if, but if, if the fall was after the treaty, those really should not be in circulation. Uh, is that correct? Or sort of, let's be very clear. It has to do as to when they were recovered. If they were recovered before the treaty, all good. If they were recovered after the treaty, not good. And I imagine that there's gray area there. No, there's, there's absolutely not. It's very, very clear. Because all of the Antarctic meteorites, I shouldn't say all, uh, I'm not 100% sure, but many of the Antarctic meteorites, their name uh, includes the year in which they were recovered. Let's talk a little bit more about that. You, you mentioned this before, you went and you spoke at your, your um, uh, school and you had the kids hold the, the asteroids, uh, I'm sorry, the meteorites. What is that difference between holding a, a moon, a meteorite from the moon, a Martian meteorite, or a meteorite from another part of the solar system? How do people collect these? Are there people that solely collect Martian meteorites? Uh, what do you find is the, the trend or the more popular meteorites to collect? Can you give us some insight on that? Sure. You know, what people like to collect is an incredibly individual desire. And usually as people get more and more into the hobby, their desires change. But what I can say is that if you were to ask collectors, how did they get started? It's usually with a very famous meteorite from Russia called Sikote Alin that fell in Russia in 1947. It was a gigantic fall and um, a lot of material came out and it was a highly affordable gorgeous iron meteorite and that really got a whole lot of people hooked and to this day a lot of people love to collect Sakote Eileen because it, it can be a just a beautiful uh, meteorite. Uh, there's other meteorites certainly that people have collected uh, to get them started uh, but it really just comes down to what was the first interaction you even had with meteorites so it could have been from a, a gem and mineral show, you know, at the, the local auditorium. So 
Yeah, you can get media rights in a lot of different places. What happens next is, do you want more? Do you want to learn more? Do you want to get involved in the hobby? Is it just like, hey, I bought this one cool thing one time and that suffices? So it, it really depends. To become a collector of the moon or Mars, uh, that does require, just because, again, of their rarity, uh, that does require a, a bigger investment and not typically one that a, a new collector would make. What's in your personal collection? Can you give us some insight into like, how do you, how do you go from collecting, right? And then deciding on what it is that you want to sell? Um, as a dealer, because sometimes I imagine that, uh, you know, collectors have this, you know, they have trouble letting go of things. Yes, I, I definitely suffer from that myself. I mean, sometimes it's really hard, and I certainly speak personally here, to separate yourself from what you have purchased and that you appreciate uh, and then have to let go. But there's also a lot of pieces which are what I would say uh, are cool, but common pieces or really special, unique, rare pieces, but you have two of them because you did do an upgrade. So, you know, the way I've run my business is, I mean, it sounds really uh, incredibly basic, but it's, you know, buy low, sell high. Um, I became aware of what I call the bathtub curve. Uh, in meteorites. And uh, what what happens is uh, perhaps there's a new fall, the price is really high, a lot more material is found, the price bottoms out, then supply ends and the, the, the price goes back up. So there's money to be made at every step there of the pricing dynamics. And you talk about the, you know, fall comes through do you personally ever go out? Uh, are you ever, in, uh, you know, tempted to go out and search for meteorites from re- recent falls? Absolutely, but there are people out there that are far, far more experienced than I am, and I've gone hunting for new falls a couple of times, and I have an absolute blast. However, for me, I treat it as a vacation, not as a business trip, because. What a lot of people don't realize is that hunting for meteorites is extremely hard work. And it's not unusual to come back empty handed. And so it's expensive to travel. There are sometimes risks that are, are, you know, you may go into territory that's not super friendly. So for me, I'd rather have relationships with the meteorite hunters and buy from them uh, when they're on the ground. Uh, If there's a fall that I can get to, absolutely, I'll go hunt it and have fun with it. But like I said, I I treat it as a fun vacation slash expedition, not not as a trip where I'm going to go collect meteorites so I can sell them. Could you describe to me what it's like to be on a meteorite hunt? Sure. It's kind of like you do a heck of a lot of walking and it's really exhausting. Uh, And so at some points you may get disheartened or you feel bored or you want to give up, but then 
that's punctuated by that moment, if you're lucky enough to actually find a specimen and, you know, it kind of, you just forget everything else because that is just so incredibly exciting. But I'll tell you what's a really cool part of going out hunting for meteorites is you get to meet a lot of people doing the same thing. And even though there's, you know, a lot of competition, there's also a lot of camaraderie. Uh, and, you know, I've met people and made friends who I'm still in contact with today. So again, there's a, there's a wonderful social aspect. And if you don't take yourself too terribly seriously, you can have a lot of fun. Definitely. So I, I live in, uh, in New York State, right? I look at a big hillside, right? And I'm like, I wonder if there's any meteorites out there. And uh, I decide to just take my metal detector and go up into the hills, you know, part of the Adirondacks. What are the chances of finding a meteorite there? Or is that just like a, a waste of time? Well, is playing the lottery a waste of time? <laughs> I'm not going to answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, because that's what you're doing, right? If you're going out there because you're telling yourself, I'm going to find a meteorite, uh, let's just say, go play the lottery. You'll have better luck. But, I mean, if there has been a fall reported, then absolutely you've got a good chance of finding it, but you can't be afraid to put in truly walking the miles. And there's a lot of things you have to know about before you recover any meteorites because there are laws in the U.S. that have to be respected in terms of land ownership and uh, potentially government ownership. And so you just have to understand what you're walking into. But if you're doing like what you said, which, hey, I'm taking a metal detector and I'm going into the the Adirondacks, then yeah, just go out there to have fun, not to find meteorites. And if you do find a meteorite, it's probably actually a meteor wrong. Um, and I get daily emails and text messages from people claiming to have found meteorites. And it's usually slag, man-made slag, or it's hematite, uh, or most often magnetite. And, you know, sometimes they take it personally, and sometimes they're thankful for the analysis. You know, you, you do the hard work, you buy a meteorite, you know, something that you, you've researched. You bought it and you hold it in your hands and it feels amazing, right? But then I came to, to realize from your site that meteorite deterioration is a thing, which makes sense because they're made out of, you know, a lot of these are made out of iron and iron rusts. Have you encountered that a lot where people bought the meteorites, left it out in the open, let's say, uh, even, even if it's just in their home and they found that it wasn't the same as, as when they bought it? Short answer is yes. You have to pay attention to your meteorite and its environment, which again is not all that unusual uh, with any other collectible. You certainly want to keep them under conditions that are going to ensure their long-term stability. So uh, with meteorites, uh, the biggest issue is typically humidity. And so if I were to sell a meteorite to someone that lives in Hawaii, I would give them potentially different advice on buying a different meteorite, or if that's the one that they want, I would also provide information about how to store it compared to someone who lives in Arizona, for example, uh, like in the uh, Tucson or Phoenix area, 
where you don't really have much to worry about because the relative humidity is so low, you can pretty much leave everything out in the open and it's not a problem. Um, I personally uh, live in the central Texas area. So I've gone to uh, great lengths to make sure that all of my material is properly curated and preserved so that it looks as good today as it will five years from now. Absolutely. I want to get into your your business, right? Skyfall Meteorites and kind of the services that you provide because you do more than just buy and sell meteorites. Like you mentioned before, you've talked about this the whole podcast. You've you know, there's a whole there's scientists involved, there's analysis involved. Could you talk about your your business, how it has developed over time, and tell us about the services that you provide? Sure. Let's start first with uh, perhaps the one that ties back into the intent behind the podcast, which is treating meteorites as an asset class. So one of the things that I, I provide, even my non-customers, I even help people out who are not my clients, is uh, kind of answering the question, is this particular meteorite worth it in terms of, of value or location or scientific importance or, or all those things? Because, I mean, let's face it, it is a collectible and you do want to be able to hopefully resell it sometime in the future or pass it on to your family. And you certainly don't want to lose money. So uh, one of the things I really help people do is to help curate their their collection and to figure out what's the right meteorite for them to accomplish their goals. And by the way, I do this as well for uh, museums and institutions. Uh, I just have wonderful relationships with scientists around the world. And, you know, sometimes like for a new fall, there may be different buying opportunities for them. And even if I can't help them out uh, because I don't have that particular meteorite, I'm certainly happy to offer advice as to what's the best way for them to acquire something. Yeah. And, and then also you have ties with uh, scientists. You're talking about like, you know, analyzing the meteorite. You take photographs of meteorites as well. I do. The meteorite community has an unusual opportunity to get much closer to scientists than what I would guess is in other uh, collectibles of natural history items. There is a, a, a relationship that is in place that because we must have scientists analyze a meteorite, we get to know those scientists. And um, I know there's certain scientists that you know, will often answer questions uh, on my my Facebook page that I run to help you know educate people. So the relationship I have with scientists is is not necessarily unique, uh, but I think it is unique in the in the world of collecting meteorites that we do have uh, oftentimes pretty pretty close access to some wonderful people in the scientific and um, museum communities. And for me, as a, as a lover of science and, and really wanting to make sure that scientists gain access to um, as much material as possible, I love helping them out. And here's what's really cool is sometimes it goes the other way around. So this last summer, I uh, was able to work with 
a wonderful scientist working at the University of Alberta called Dr. Chris Hurd. And um, he helped me with some analyses that required to be done because I've been working on this idea that King Tutankhamun's dagger, which has been shown to be made of meteoritic iron, uh, was in fact possibly forged uh, using forging techniques that or smelting techniques uh, used for bronze. Anyways, it gets kind of complicated. We're way off topic, but I guess I just wanted to share that there are opportunities for collectors, dealers, and scientists to work together in, in some really wonderful ways. And just in listening and, and uh, you know, you giving some hints into the depth of knowledge that you have, uh, we could probably talk for another couple hours. But yeah, I mean, just, just the fact that, so you're saying to me, I, I just, I just, I'm just saying this out loud. You're saying that something that King Tut was buried with, one of those artifacts was actually made out of uh, meteoritic material? That's correct. Uh, and, and this was discovered quite some time back. But the question that has not quite been answered is, well, how did they manipulate the meteoritic iron to get it into the shape of the dagger? And so I've been thinking about that question and came up with some uh, ways that, that we could try and answer that question. And I presented a poster um, at the last Meteoritical Society conference in Chicago uh, in August. With the help, like I said, well, not just the help, but guidance, wisdom, and tremendous support from Dr. Chris Hurd and the University of Alberta. So let's say that someone wants to start collecting, even somebody that wants to uh, put their money into an alternative asset, right? And we talk so much about this now because of, you know, there's platforms dedicated. And man, you would you would believe there's so many different classes, right? So you're talking about, you know, wine, whiskey, trading cards, comic books, um, video games, NFTs, domain names. So there's so many different things. And so, you know, in the past, when you thought about an alternative asset, you thought maybe, you know, real estate, maybe farmland. And uh, those assets are still obviously, you know, alternative assets. They're not like your typical stocks, bonds. And I guess we're going into something that's more tangible, right? Because you hold, you can hold these assets in your hand. You can hold a bottle of wine. You can hold a trading card. And same with, you know, meteorites that are, you know, that, <laughs> that you can hold. Is it a viable asset class to where you can buy a meteorite that if you do your research, you are kind of talking about um, you know, a recession-proof appreciating asset over the long term? Or is that just sort of a, a big old speculation? So there's a lot to unwrap in that, that question. But let me start with this. If you're a new collector, just buy what you love. Don't worry about the long-term value and don't worry about it being an asset class. Just buy what inspires you, what will drive you to learn more and to share it with your friends. You know, there's some meteorites that you can buy that are literally, you know, maybe $10 for an ounce, 50 cents for a gram. Um, it doesn't have to be an expensive hobby. So, again, if you buy what you love, you've never made a bad investment. So I think that's a really critical piece of advice. 
before we spoke here today, I listened to another podcast and it was really interesting to me to hear so many similarities and pieces of advice given as, as I would like to offer, which is education, education, education. Buying things because you think it's going to go up in value is not something for the faint of heart. And it's certainly not something to be done without expertise that you have or expertise that you can leverage from somebody else, such as myself. You know, it's like if you didn't even know what a stock was, would you go off and just buy a stock because someone told you, hey, this is a a cool thing, you know, some penny stock no one's ever heard about. Long story short, I would say hopefully not. So with meteorites, it's the details that matter. And sometimes a very small detail can have an oversized impact on the long-term value of a particular specimen. I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story about maybe seven, eight years ago, the Chinese market for meteorites really started turning on. And there was great interest in, uh, in some sense, repatriating uh, some Chinese meteorites. People wanted a specific kind of meteorite because it was a Chinese meteorite. But, but the Chinese market really fell in love with iron meteorites. So with the increased demand from uh, and I should say greatly increased demand from the Chinese market, the value of these iron meteorites, specific ones, really went really high. And you could easily have 10x your money over five years. Um, and like we, we discussed previously, once something gets all bought up or placed in institutions, it just doesn't become really accessible to the market. And so you could have great demand for little to no supply. And of course, then that drives up the price of a particular specimen or meteorite. But we need to talk about a different dynamic also, which is today this, the number of meteorite collectors in the world is really pretty small. Like I said before, it's way smaller than fossil collectors, mineral collectors. I'm willing to bet that there are far, far, far more collectors uh, for dolls than there are for meteorites. Nothing bad against dolls. I know that they can be a great, a great asset class, but I'm just trying to show that the, the collecting of meteorites is still a really pretty new thing. And through uh, efforts with education, outreach, uh, all those kinds of things, I think there is amazing potential to increase the number of people that collect meteorites. Now, whether you consider this a good thing or a bad thing, I'll leave up to your listeners. But what will be an undeniable impact is that the price of particular meteorites as the size of the market grows will probably disproportionately grow as well. Yeah. You know, you talk about that education and I want to go back to your, you know, your origin story there with meteorites and where your interest got sparked with uh, a TV show, right? Yes. I'd be willing to bet because in, in, in reading different things, they, all these collectors cite that show in one form or another. 
And I'm willing to bet that that show was responsible for, for creating a whole bunch of new you know, collectors, whether they went into it full-time or even just as still as a hobby. I'm sure that that sparked a huge uh, part of the industry. And I'm wondering if that's all it takes, you know, is, is one interesting, well-produced show to, you know, to spark an industry. You're absolutely right. As you stated, that was certainly for me, something that absolutely hooked me almost immediately. But I, I do want to make a, a, a small distinction. You know, one of the aspects of the show was to assign values to all these different meteorites. And that's all well and good. That was a decision, you know, probably that was made for the producers or how the show was presented. But for me, what really hooked me was not about, oh, my God, this meteorite is worth, you know, X amount of money. What really hooked me and and drove me to be a passionate collector was oh, wow, you mean I can hold and collect and own a rock from space? That's what opened my eyes, was that realization that um, these extraterrestrial visitors are, in fact, something that anyone can own. And so that makes it something that's accessible to everybody. I'm going to ask you one more kind of off-topic question, and then, uh, and then uh, you know, I want to respect your time, Mandy. I know I'm sure you're a busy guy. Um, could you describe to me kind of like your favorite impact or landfall, you know, historical impact? And I'm going to be a little silly here, and I'm going to say, you know, did a meteorite, you know, kill off the dinosaurs, you know? <laughs> and is there definitive proof of where that is? And I know I'm asking two different questions, but that always fascinated me, you know, that this outer space rock was responsible for the extinction of dinosaurs because I loved my dinosaurs when I was a kid. <laughs> so that's one thing. But then the other thing is in your study, you know, you with the hobby and, and, and getting to know the industry or the history, the science behind it, everything behind it. What is your favorite landfall impact? Impossible for me to answer that last question. I actually have many favorites and some of them have to do with the rarity or it has to do with the beauty or it has to do with the incredible scientific significance. So you're asking an impossible question of me. Unfortunately, I'm going to beg off uh, answering that question. It's been proven that, yes, uh, an asteroid killed off the dinosaurs. The proof of it is in the Chicxulub crater that's in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and additional research was done and there was a layer uh, in uh, an iridium layer uh, that was found to have come from a meteor in sedimentary layer in the KT boundary layer, I believe. So I think it's pretty well established that uh, there was an extinction level event. The proof of it and the remnants of it uh, can be found in the Gulf of Mexico and in structures uh, as well on, on land. And the discovery of that iridium layer that is meteoritic iridium, and they can figure that out because of its isotopic composition, kind of goes to that. For people listening, where can they find you? So there's three main ways to contact me. So my website is skyfallmeteorites.com, all one word. Uh, another easy way to get a hold of me is on Facebook. Um, I'm the only Mendy Uzulu in the entire world. So I'm not hard to find. 
and certainly as well through the Global Meteorite Association. Uh, and the name of that group is gmeta.org. So gmeta.org. Those are the various ways people can find me. Just type in Mindy Uzalu. I'm not hard to find. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for spending the time with me and, and, and for educating me and, and, and the listeners. Listen, it's, it's really my pleasure. And let me just close it by saying this, is that I think we have, through Meteorites, a wonderful opportunity to encourage kids to enter uh, STEM careers. And, uh, as, a, as someone who is so passionate, not just about collecting meteorites, but about science and education, I should also kind of say, I want to say a big thank you to the researchers, scientists, and curators out there that make our ability to even collect meteorites really possible because they're the final arbiters of, of the science. And yeah, I'd love to talk to you further about this. Uh, you know, I think we kind of barely, barely scratched the surface. There's a lot bigger story to be told. Definitely. Again, thanks a lot and uh, have a good night, Mandy. Will do. Mendy's passion for meteorites really comes out, and I'm always fascinated by the enthusiasm and knowledge that collectors have. I was also struck by the respect Mendy has for his craft and the role he plays as a meteorite dealer in tandem with the scientific community. If you enjoyed today's podcast, let others know about it. We find our guests so interesting and knowledgeable, and I know others will too. Or leave a review or hit the follow button. Until next time, take care.